Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. The concepts that underlie hospice were introduced a few centuries ago, but the modern hospice movement began in London in 1967. In 1982, hospice was added as a Medicare benefit. Today, half of all Medicare decedents enroll in hospice at a total cost to Medicare in 2019 of $20.9 billion. Now, hospice has a strong evidence base for improving end-of-life experiences for the recipient and the recipient's family, but there's limited evidence regarding the effects of hospice for people with dementia. This is a critical knowledge gap given that one in three adults ages 85 and older has dementia. Understanding how well hospice works for people with dementia is the topic of today's episode of A Health Podacy. I'm here with Krista Harrison, Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Harrison and co-authors published a paper in the June 2022 issue of Health Affairs assessing the relationship between hospice enrollment and last month of life care quality for Medicare enrollees living with dementia. They found that hospice-enrolled people living with dementia had higher quality last month of life care than people who are not enrolled in hospice, with quality levels similar to people without dementia. We'll discuss this finding and more in today's episode. Dr. Harrison, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to this conversation about two very important topics that we don't tend to bring together. Your study examines the intersection of hospice and dementia, and I think in order to have a good conversation, we need to ground ourselves in both of these concepts. So let's start with hospice. What does the hospice benefit provide? How does it look different as a recipient of hospice care uh, than it does if you're not getting that sort of care. Yeah, thanks for this great starting question. So to be clear at the bat, hospice is rarely a place in the United States. It's a benefit and a service. Hospice provides 24-7 access to interdisciplinary care wherever the person calls home. So that could be a, a private residence, but it could also be assisted living nursing facilities or occasionally a standalone hospice inpatient unit or, say, dedicated beds within a hospital. So in a, what that means to provide access to an interdisciplinary team typically is Visits by interdisciplinary team members, such as nursing visits every two weeks, visits from social workers or chaplain maybe once a month, uh, but of course frequency of visits are uh, depend on what the person's particular needs and care plan and preferences are. And then care is coordinated uh, through interdisciplinary team meetings with a physician. Uh, and then in addition to those clinical visits, the hospice is responsible for providing any medications related to the diseases that are contributing to the terminal prognosis and also any durable medical equipment that the enrollee might need, such as a hospital bed. I'm glad you began by clarifying that hospice is a set of services. We're going to come back to sort of the living circumstances of people in a moment. Now, just to motivate your study, when you think about people with dementia, how would hospice services be different for people with dementia than they might be for people who don't have dementia? It's such an important question, and it really goes back to where how the 
hospice care started. And the philosophy of hospice care really centers around respecting the moral agency of dying people and their families. And part of that has to do with when hospice started, it really was designed primarily around a model of people who were dying from cancer. So in practice, this means that the model of hospice care currently practiced in the United States assumes that the dying person is able to participate in in the decision-making processes and that family members are able to step in and provide help with, say, symptom management and, and functional needs if the person cannot do that themselves. The, again, there are biweekly visits from members of the team, but there's a lot of time that the interdisciplinary team isn't present. But for people who are dying from dementia, if they, that that's their principal cause of, uh, and, and reason they qualified for hospice, um, the current requirements are that they are unable to speak and need help with almost all activities of daily living, such as toileting, bathing, or dressing. So that really means that they need 24-7 caregiving support for help. And so that's a bit of a mismatch between the expectations of the hospice model versus the needs of people with dementia and their families. So it sounds like, and this is so common in our healthcare system, where a whole system, including a payment model, a coverage model, a delivery model, arises from a set of circumstances. And then things change. Uh, Diagnosis change, prognosis changes, care models change. Um, Your point about the origins in the U.S. of Medicare coverage for hospice being uh, sort of cancer as the model, you could easily imagine, given what you said, that people with dementia might not be well served by the hospice model. Is that sort of what you were wondering when you began this work? Indeed, we were. And we knew that hospice is one of the the, um, most substantial supports and services for end-of-life care. And so we hoped that people with dementia were getting excellent quality care, but we were worried that they they might not be well served. There are other parts of the literature that talk about how uh, people with dementia may be enrolled very late into hospice services because uh, there are some regulatory pressures that mean that hospice organizations are reluctant to uh, enroll people with dementia too soon and then risk uh, potentially having to disenroll them alive because they've lived too long and they can no longer document a a trajectory of decline and maybe Medicare doesn't reimburse them for services. Uh, And then when people, there are also, there's literature saying that people get disenrolled from hospice more frequently when they have dementia because again, of of those pressures. And um, it can sound like a good thing if somebody's disenrolled in lives because, okay, great, they're living longer. But the, unfortunately, with there being no great uh, alternative model of care, people often feel abandoned and uh, things sort of go downhill quickly and people often end up re-enrolling uh, sometimes even multiple times. And and that's not great for patients and families to have those changes in care. Okay, so I'm going to take that really important uh, set of uh, concepts you threw out and and try to say it back in a in a the way that I might experience it as a as a family member. Um, first of all, the services that hospice provides sound like they could because they're socially oriented and 
they could potentially be quite helpful for someone with dementia. But then this these regulatory issues you mentioned, uh, the hospice benefit is only available if you have a prognosis of six months or less. And the challenge is, of course, when the benefit was created around cancer, there was a sense that we kind of knew when people were approaching the end. It wasn't certain, but the, the ability to, to determine that was fairly good. D- the course of dementia is quite different, quite unpredictable. And so you can uh, imagine people being enrolled, if you will, too soon, not too soon because they don't need the support, but too soon because they're not in that six-month window. Then what you described is they they get kicked out because they're still alive, but they still have the needs. So that, I guess, goes back to this question of, are we kind of fitting a square peg in a round hole? We've got supports and services people need, but the benefit structure, benefit design doesn't really fit with the diagnosis. Yeah, that was such a nice restatement, and I, I really appreciate that. I think of it as, um, again, with with uh, the hospice care model being such a great model to theoretically address the needs, it would make sense to to want to enroll in hospice as soon as those care needs escalate beyond what's easily managed by yourself. But the payment mechanisms are not set up and the regulatory processes are not set up for that. Uh, And so there's an ongoing debate about um, what do we do now that hospice is so ambitious and trying to serve so many different people? Can we modify hospice structures to better serve the distinct needs of all the different populations served, or is a different model needed? And one of the fundamental questions to answer that is, well, how well does hospice work now for people with dementia who are enrolled? And that's the question you set out to answer. And before I let you give the answer, I want to pull back in a thread that you dangled in front of me right as we started, which is that hospice is a set of services Uh, A critical element here for people with dementia is where are they living when they get the care? Uh, What do we know about where people with dementia, uh, as they approach the end of life, are living? Many of us, if, if we haven't been part of this literature, would assume that people with dementia are primarily living and dying, especially at advanced stages, in nursing facilities where you can get both social support and medical support. However, in this study, we found that nearly 70% of people with dementia were living in the home settings roughly six months before death, at the the last interview before death. Nearly half or 48% of people enrolled at hospice at home and 37% died at home. And the second most common location of death was actually the nursing facilities, but that was only 24% or a quarter of participants. So I think there's been a long time that we haven't recognized how many people with dementia are living and dying in home and community settings where we don't have the sort of systematic supports that we do in nursing facilities in theory. Well, and that last point also is important. If you ask people where they want to die, they say at home, they don't want to be in a hospital or nursing home, but they want to die at home with support and help. They don't want to be languishing at home, a burden on family and community. And so again, in theory, hospice is a way to make a death at home a more 
if you will, satisfactory outcome relative to the alternatives. Um, but if it's if those services aren't there, living at home is is no great uh, uh, victory, is it? Yeah, and I want to be clear that sometimes we set up one care setting as better or worse than another care setting, and I think that the the best setting to live and die in is the one that is the best suited to the preferences and abilities of the family and that enable them to get the kind of care they want and need at an affordable price and at the time and amount that they want. Uh, and it it <laughs> those are hard things to achieve in the current um, system in the United States. Well, you've just set the stage for a conversation of what quality of care is as you approach the end of life. I'll talk to you about that after we take a short break. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Krista Harrison about quality of care for older adults with dementia who are enrolled in the hospice program. Before the break, we had a really nice conversation about the needs of this population. The study published in the June 2022 issue of Health Affairs focuses on quality of care. Uh, we haven't really gotten into that part of the story until now. So let's talk about what does it mean to have a high quality of care as someone approaches the end of life? So one thing I want to say at the outset is the uh, common quote about not all important things can be measured and we don't measure all important things, right? So we used a study that had existing data. So we were restricted to the data available in the National Health Aging and Trend Study. But luckily, the measures included in that study are based on extensive work by hospice experts, Dr. Joan Tino and others, uh, which have been validated and are used were used in the family assessment of hospice care for many years. And subsequently, that evolved into the hospice cap survey, which is delivered to the bereaved family member of every hospice enrollee in the United States. So essentially, this is the best we have available in our quantitative measures, but it may not be all the things that families really think matter. So these measures particularly focus on the last month of life, and the questions are asked of proxy respondents after the person has died. Some examples, please read our study for details, but are an overall assessment of care quality from, say, poor to excellent. Uh, but then specific questions about things that have been shown to matter to patients and families, such as the right amount of symptoms, such as not too much nor too little pain management or help with uh, breathing, anxiety or sadness, were there enough uh, supports for personal care needs, and then questions like, were the patient and family always kept informed? It's always difficult to use survey data to capture a construct, but these are validated questions and they they give us as you say the a, a good picture a good sense so we've now covered a whole lot of background and it's time to actually talk about what you found you were interested in whether or not people with dementia were served well by hospice and what would you say the conclusion is from the work you did so the big takeaway is that the proxies of persons living with dementia who were enrolled in hospice compared to those who were not enrolled in hospice but also had dementia, they more often reported care to be excellent. So in other words, at least half of 
people with dementia had excellent quality of care in the last month of life. There were some subtleties to that too, such as uh, on the specific measures, more often reporting having their anxiety or sadness uh, managed, uh, and then less often having changes in the last three days of life, which can be really disruptive to, to patients and families. So the findings really match what the services of hospice are intended to provide, which is encouraging. You do note uh, room for improvement. You said half had excellent. Uh, We can all do the math. That means half didn't. So overall, better, but room for improvement. What, What does that look like to you? If you were to describe what's necessary to improve quality so that there was a higher uh, share of excellent responses. What what would that involve? Yeah. So, you know, even though this quality was good and it was no different than people without dementia, the clearest example was that indeed only half of proxies reported care at the overall highest level. So we really think that given that now half of all older adults enrolled in hospice have dementia, either as a primary or secondary dose diagnosis, according to other research by, in fact, members of this team, dementia really needs to be a core competency of hospice teams. Um, So examples of that might be ensuring that um, the the medications that are often part of a standard medication order set, often called a comfort kit, some of those can exacerbate behavioral symptoms. Uh, and so may not be as well suited to caring for people with dementia at the end of life. But then there's other structural factors, such as really providing additional support for family caregivers who might be stepping in and providing daily support, such as by providing additional home health aides who can do a lot of that daily caregiving. Um, Those are just a few examples. Now, you snuck in another finding, right, as you started answering that question. We focused on the comparison uh, for people with dementia on whether they had hospice care or not. But you also noted that the quality overall for people with dementia was about the same as the quality for people without dementia. So that's a different comparison. I wonder what conclusions you draw from that, given your recommendation that hospice teams should have more guided training around dementia, but it seems like the quality is approximately the same whether someone has dementia or not. We had a lot of conversations about this as a team, and what we what we ended up sort of discussing was that, and this brought brings in a lot of our expertise from our clinical colleagues, uh, former experience as a hospice administrator myself, um, and from uh, the variety of mixed methods literature that's out there, is that dying with dementia isn't something that's just going on at the last month of life, that maybe the experience of dying with dementia for patient and family is pretty similar at a month before death as it is a year before death, especially since many times it's uh, an infection that sharply changes the trajectory of the disease and, and what's happening to people. And that might be ultimately what they die from. In contrast, somebody with who's dying of cancer might have very different experiences a year before death as they're having in the last month of life, and same for their family. And so, you know, in the future, we don't have these measures available now, but 
looking at how care quality varies over time at the various different stages of disease might help us figure out where are the times where we really need to step up our involvement in uh, supporting patients and families as they are in this long trajectory of functional decline with dementia. On the upside, as we were talking about earlier, for a care model that was originally developed in the context of one disease and has expanded to other diseases over time, this tells us a lot about the flexibility of the model and what it might be able to do. Oh, those are such interesting areas for additional work. I'm, I'm glad you and your colleagues did have a lot of conversations about this. Uh, let's uh, just return to sort of where we began around the hospice benefit and the design of the Medicare benefit. Uh, you mentioned some things that we done to improve quality that were, I would say, more sort of uh, service-oriented uh, training and availability of services. Uh, we're a policy journal, so we're always looking at policy. Of course, the six-month rule in hospice has been discussed. Um, but uh, whether it's that or something else in your work, are there aspects of the design of either the benefit or the eligibility for the benefit that you feel your work points to opportunities for improvement? So this particular study doesn't answer that question, but certainly the the broader literature starts to point to opportunities for change and some of the other ongoing work we're doing looks at this. And to be clear at the start, the reason the structure of the hospice benefit has such a major impact on access to care and access to quality care at end of life is because we lack an alternative and adequately funded model of all-inclusive longitudinal care at home that provides medical, functional, social, and spiritual support. So with that, you know, the hospice, Medicare hospice benefit requires, as you said at the start, that physicians attest they wouldn't be surprised if the person died within six months if the disease runs as expected course. But for dementia, we're no better at guessing that than a coin flip. Um, and that was a that was a, mo- a measure that got implemented at the start at the implementation of the Medicare hospice benefit, partly as a cost containment measure. But it's really having challenging impacts on uh, addressing the needs of people with dementia. So some of my qualitative work, we talk to hospice staff members, uh, clinicians, employees, leaders, and they talked about how they really perceived this demand for hospice care to be increasing right at the time where they felt like regulatory pressures were making it really difficult for them to meet that need. Testing some models where we don't require that uh, six-month prognostic period There's been a demonstration project of being able to access both hospice and quote-unquote curative care at the same time. And unfortunately, that demonstration model excluded people with dementia from the enrollment. And so we really need to test what happens when you enroll people with dementia for a longer period of time and, and hospice organizations don't have to do so much work justifying why this person needs this interdisciplinary model of care. Of course, on the flip side, that's going to increase costs. So we need great research looking at the impact of enrollment and hospice at various lengths of time on costs, not only costs to Medicare, but cost to patients and families and caregivers. The other piece is just because it costs more, if it's the right care at the right time and the right amount that makes people's lives better, 
maybe that's a good investment of resources. You know, as you describe this, my background's in Medicaid, and it's so similar to the conversations we had about nursing home care. Nursing home care is an entitlement in Medicaid, uh, but it's not people's preferred locus of care in the vast majority of circumstances. So we create these alternatives, home and community-based long-term services and supports. Uh, But we're worried about spending too much money because, after all, the need for those is very great. And you kind of open the door a a crack so that you let some people in, but not everyone who would benefit from it. Um, Thankfully, over literally decades, we've, you know, flipped the model to where there's more spending on home community-based services than there is on nursing home services. But that was a hard-fought battle, and it took many changes in uh, financing as well as the delivery of care. And it sounds like some of those exact same dynamics are at play here, not, uh, not of course, around the nursing facility, but around the question of uh, when people need support, uh, we want to, if we give them, if we offer them what they want, more people will take it. If we make it uh, more restrictive, then fewer people will take it, but also fewer people will get what they need. So I hate to say it, this is a many decade uh, uh, long uh, challenge to overcome, but it does sound uh, quite familiar. Dr. Harrison, thank you so much for the research, for the work you're doing, for the cutting edge uh, data and understanding that it creates. Uh, I share your goal of living and dying in a model that is supportive of, of myself and my family. And it's nice to see you uh, helping make that more likely to occur. Uh, thank you so much also for being my guest on Health Policy. It's been such a pleasure. I really appreciate everything you're doing and your commitment to these topics. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to a Health Policy on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening. <laughs>